and of ourselves are not special men, right? And in light of that, I, I just want you to know this, um, and we're going to come to uh, the, the text here in a moment. It's okay if you don't immediately understand everything you read in the Bible. That's okay. And it's also okay if even after much study, you still find a portion of Scripture to be very difficult. That is normal for quite a few places in the Bible. And you know, our confession of faith actually says this. In the 1689 Confession, chapter 1, paragraph 7, the first sentence says this, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Amen. Right? Not all of Scripture is the, is, is the same with regard to how easy it is to understand. Some portions of Scripture are more difficult than others. So you should be encouraged. Right? And tonight we come to a passage that I have found to be difficult in the particulars, but very simple in the overall theme. And here's the big theme of our text this evening. Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, must suffer. He must suffer. Before he enters into the reign of his kingdom, he must first suffer. As glorious as he is and as great and beautiful as his reign is, he must first suffer death because it is the plan and will of God. That's the big theme in our text. So with that said, now if you would, as a sign of respect to our God, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come to you once again to ask for your help. Please grant us understanding of your word. Apart from your grace, we cannot understand anything to the good of our souls. So we ask that you would work in us this evening by the mighty power of your Holy Spirit to grant us insight and understanding of the word. Apply the truth to our hearts by the power of the Spirit. Let things sink in deeply so that we might recall them later. And permit us to get a sight of our Savior with the eye of faith so that we would glory in him. Have mercy on us, we pray. And we ask for it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, some context here. It's been a few months, so let me refresh your memory on what's going on prior to this text. And just real quick before we get going, I got a lot of material to cover, and I'm going to try to cover it quickly. So forgive me if I speak faster than normal, maybe. But Jesus has just taken three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain to see something amazing. Jesus took them up on the mountain so that they could see his transfiguration. That's the text immediately before this. And the transfiguration of Christ was an amazing sight. They saw Jesus' face shine brighter than the sun at noonday. They saw his clothes become dazzling like lightning, brighter than any man on earth could bleach them. And this light was coming from within Jesus. It was emanating out from him. His glory was shining through. And then Moses and Elijah appeared 
and began to talk with Jesus about his impending death at Jerusalem, right, they were probably encouraging him to continue. But in that, the disciples get to see that the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah, point to Jesus and that Jesus is over them. And then the bright cloud of God's glory, the Shekinah cloud from the Old Testament, right, that descended upon the tabernacle and filled the temple in the Old Testament, the same cloud descends upon the mountain and covers all of them. And God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And then the vision was over, and all they saw was Jesus with them. This is a glorious event. This was an event that Peter, James, and John would never, ever forget It was in this event that it became absolutely undeniable to them that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. They believed it before, but now it's as if it's cemented in their hearts. Jesus is the Messiah. They saw him in his glory, which was a preview of the glory that awaited him after his death and resurrection, though they didn't realize that. They saw a preview of Christ in all of his splendor. The veil was pulled back for a moment, and they saw Jesus as he is. So again, there was no denying for them that Jesus is the Christ. They had seen too much. They had undeniable proof. They had heard God himself speak from heaven. You can imagine how excited that these disciples were to tell everybody everything that they had seen and heard. I'm sure that they were bursting with joy, so glad to come down from the mountain and begin to tell that Jesus is the Christ. That that they were excited to tell people that they had seen Elijah and Moses. Excited to tell uh, what the very voice of God had spoken from heaven concerning Jesus. And in telling this message, they're thinking certainly a, a great number of people would begin to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that many people would begin to follow him. Right? Peter, James, and John must be thinking, it's on now. Right? Jesus just showed us his glory. It's time to go to Jerusalem and clean house. It's time to go and kick the Romans out and begin the reign of the kingdom of God. And you kind of can't blame them too much for thinking this. This is all they've ever heard about the Messiah. For, for, to refresh your memory, the disciples expected that when Messiah came, that it was to be a time of nothing but glory. The Messiah would come and gather an army of willing Israelites and begin to conquer the enemies of Israel. That Messiah would make Israel a sovereign, independent nation again. And that he would then begin a conquest of the world and make all the Gentiles bow down at the feet of the Jews. That's what they've been taught their whole life. Once Messiah comes, pure glory awaits. Israel will receive the Messiah And the Messiah will give us national peace and political freedom and dominion over the world. And he will do so as a warrior king. That's what's in their mind. They were ready for glory and they wanted it now. Seeing the glory of Christ up on the mountain would have been like a shot of messianic adrenaline to their hearts. They, they, They were thinking, we're on easy street now. Let's go. Let's go to Jerusalem and let's get this party started. And that's why you can imagine their shock when we read... Verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus tells them to be silent. You, you can almost see their jaws drop in your mind. This would have been a shock to them. It would have been very disappointing for them. But Jesus had very good reasons for telling them to be silent about what they had seen. I think that there are 
primarily two reasons for why Jesus told them to be silent. And these are important for us. The first is this. As I've stated already, the disciples, along with the other Jews of their day, have many false expectations for the Messiah. They expect a political, earthly kingdom that will conquer by earthly force. They expect the Messiah to be an earthly, political king who will at last free Israel from Rome. They expect mainly earthly blessings and victory from the hands of the Messiah. And that is not what Jesus came to do. That's not what he came to do. That's not his mission. His kingdom is not of this world. His reign is not through political means. He did not come to merely make things temporarily better for one earthly nation. No, Jesus Christ came primarily in order to live, die, and be raised from the dead in order to save sinners and grant them eternal life in his kingdom which is a spiritual kingdom made up of believers. And I'm not denying that there's not an earthly, there are earthly ramifications for that in the real world in history. I'm not denying that at all. But I'm saying that his kingdom is primarily spiritual. It has to do with salvation and eternal life. And Jesus knows that his disciples don't yet understand this. They're blinded by their rabbinical traditions. They do not yet understand what he has come to do, so they must be silent about his identity until he has completed his work of salvation. Then they will understand, and then they will actually be commanded to therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. That is, they will be commanded to go and proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. And this tells us something really important. Here it is. You cannot understand Jesus and his mission apart from his death and resurrection. You can't. That's one of the big points of Jesus' interactions with the disciples in, in at least chapters 8 and 9 of Mark's gospel. Right? You, you cannot understand that he came to suffer the wrath of God and die in the place of sinners apart from him dying and being raised to save us. You cannot understand that he came to bear our iniquities and make atonement for us apart from his death and resurrection. You can't understand his kingdom or how to enter into it apart from his work that brings sinners into his kingdom. Therefore, you cannot proclaim him apart from his death and resurrection. Because at best, you'll be proclaiming half-truths and inconsistencies. And at worst, you'll be proclaiming absolute falsehood about him. This is why Christ crucified and raised from the dead has always been at the heart of all legitimate Christian proclamation. Because without it, we're not telling the whole story. Without it, we are not accurately or adequately proclaiming Christ. Hear me out. Without the death and resurrection, you can proclaim that Jesus was a fantastic teacher. But that's not the whole story. That baby wants us to proclaim the whole Christ, right? I'm telling you. <laughs> apart, but apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus, you can proclaim that Jesus was a great teacher, but that is not the whole story. Apart from the death and resurrection of Christ, you can proclaim that Jesus was a great miracle worker who was kind to many, but that's not the whole story. Without the death and resurrection, you can proclaim that Jesus taught people to love one another and help each other, and that is beautiful, but that is not the whole story. Without the death and resurrection, you cannot proclaim that Jesus is the Savior. 
Apart from the death and resurrection, you cannot proclaim that Jesus is Savior. That Jesus is the one appointed by God to save his people from their sins. That Jesus is the one who came to grant us eternal life. And those are the most important things that we proclaim. But the disciples don't yet understand that. They have all these false expectations about the Messiah. And Jesus is aware of that. So he tells them to be silent until his work and mission is accomplished. And then, once they understand, they are to proclaim. But I think there's a second reason that Jesus commands silence. And it's related to the first quite heavily. Because of all the false expectations about Messiah that nearly all the Jews believed at that time, Jesus does not want it told that he is the Messiah. Why? Because he knows that if word gets out that he is the Messiah, then many people will flock to him, and a political movement will start around him, and the people of Israel would make him their king politically. And if that happens, then his supporters would never allow him to be killed. And he knows that. And if you think, man, you're... like. Those are, that's a lot of inferences. Like, are you sure? I promise that's not a stretch because that almost already happened in Jesus' ministry so far. In John chapter 6, after Jesus performed the miracle of bread and fed the 5,000, we read this in verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. That's the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Right? This is the Messiah. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He had to run away. A political movement was, coming, was, was starting to encircle him that he didn't want any part of. If the disciples go out and proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, then the Jews, with their false expectations, would try to make him king. And if they did that, then they would not allow anyone to kill him. And Jesus refuses to let that happen. That's amazing. We're going to come back to that later. But Jesus refuses to allow anyone or anything to keep him from dying. That is, he will not let anyone keep him from fulfilling his mission and work, which is to die for sinners and be raised from the dead. So determined was our Lord to go to the cross on our behalf that he refused to allow anyone to keep him from it. He had a mission from his father. He had been sent, and he was going to fulfill his mission. He must die and be raised. So Jesus commands silence from the disciples until after he should rise from the dead. And now we come to the confusion of the disciples in verse 10. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. The disciples are incredibly confused at this saying of Jesus rising from the dead. Now, I want to be clear about some stuff. It was not the concept of resurrection that confused them. Right? That's taught in the Old Testament. The doctrine of a general resurrection at the end of the age was common in Jewish thought in the first century. So that didn't throw them off. And it wasn't the concept of individual resurrection that threw them off either. They had examples of this in the Old Testament. I'm primarily thinking of Elisha raising the Shunammite woman's son from the dead in 2 Kings chapter 4. More than that, by this point in Jesus' ministry, Peter, James, and John had actually witnessed Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. That was in Mark chapter 5. 
So it's not an individual resurrection that's throwing them off. It's not a general resurrection that's throwing them off. It's the idea that Jesus should be raised from the dead that's confusing them. That the Messiah would be resurrected. And that bothered them. Why? Simply because being raised from the dead implies that one must die first. And they don't have a category for a Messiah that dies. They don't have a category for a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah. They don't have a category for a Messiah that is raised from the dead. So they are at a loss to explain what Jesus means when he says, the Son of Man be raised from the dead. And you kind of can't blame them on one level. Right? We take for granted, for real, like, we're real quick to say, like, the disciples are stupid, but, like, throw them a bone every once in a while. Right? We are, we take for granted that the Messiah had to die. Why? Well, obviously, it's, it's taught in the scriptures. We're going to see that later. But that's all we've ever known. Of course, of course the Messiah has to die. We've been taught that from childhood if you were raised in the church. The disciples had heard the exact opposite their entire lives. So we can sympathize with them a little bit. Right? Just consider the wording of verse 9. The Son of Man was to rise from the dead. And what that triggers in the disciples' mind is it makes them think of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. Right? That's, who Jesus, that's what Jesus is referring to whenever he calls himself the Son of Man, by the way. This is the one to whom God gives dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. An eternal dominion that shall not pass away. And a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. That son of man. And they had just seen the glory of Christ on the mountain when he was transfigured. And they're thinking, how can he die? How can the son of man die? How can the glorious one die? It doesn't make sense. Messiah doesn't die. Right? So they're looking at each other saying, what did he mean? I don't know, dude. He must have been speaking in metaphors. Like, I don't, I don't know what he meant. They're confused because they have no category for a suffering Messiah. And that's because they do not yet understand the mission of Jesus to die and be raised for sinners. Now, they are a bit thick to some degree, the disciples are. They're a little dim, maybe. The disciples aren't always the sharpest people. But I think that this is hard-heartedness to some degree or another. They don't understand because they don't want to understand and I had to take this point out of my sermon. That's worth thinking about for yourself. Often we, we act like we don't understand. Well, Jesus couldn't have meant that. I'm pretty sure he, he meant what he said. <laughs> we overcomplicate things because we don't want to accept what Jesus has said in the scriptures. But that's what they're doing here. They don't want to understand. They're Christians, no doubt. They believe in Jesus. They've got a lot to learn and a lot to be corrected on. But they are genuine disciples. They're just being stubborn and they're not accepting what our Lord says here. But praise God, Jesus is not finished with them yet. He will continue to be their, their master. He will continue to teach them until they at last understand and accept the truth. Jesus is faithful to his disciples and he will not cast them off. He will make sure to be faithful to them so that they eventually understand. And this all brings us to the disciples' question in verse 11. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? The rest of the conversation hangs on this question and why it was asked. So we need to understand what the scribes were saying 
and why they were saying it. And we need to also understand why the disciples asked this question. Now let me go ahead and summarize what the scribes and the teachers of the law taught. I'm going to do that first, and then we're going to flesh it out some, and then hopefully see the train of thought in how this verse connects with what comes before and what follows after. Because this, is, this connects everything. So in summary, the scribes taught this. It's very simple. Before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come and prepare the way for him. That's it. Before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come first and prepare the way for him. Now this had become common Jewish belief for centuries at this point in history, and for good reason. Right? This scribal tradition is biblical. It's based in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And if you want to go ahead and flip there, it's the last book of the Old Testament. I'm going to be reading them. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Let's look at them briefly and see what the scribal tradition said and why. Malachi 3, 1. God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In this text, God says that he will send a messenger to prepare the way for him. And in this context, in the context of of, of Malachi's whole prophecy, this messenger comes before a great day of judgment from God. So the messenger then comes to preach repentance in order that the people of Israel would be prepared for God to visit them and not be destroyed. All right? Now, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Here we see that God says he will send Elijah the prophet before a great day of judgment. That is the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. And what's interesting to note is the grammatical structure of the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 5 are nearly identical. Stick with me here, guys. Behold, I send my messenger. Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I will send you Elijah, Malachi 4.5. So the scribes understood Malachi 3.1 and 4.5 to be referring to the same person. It's the same messenger. The messenger who has to come before a great day of judgment, which, by the way, the Jews thought was the final judgment at the end of the world. That's debatable. right? A lot of people think that that's the case. I, I disagree. But that is what the Jews thought. That this day of the Lord was the final judgment. But the messenger who was to come before a great day of judgment was Elijah. So in the minds of the scribes, here's how things worked out. Elijah comes to preach repentance before God comes in judgment at the end of the world. But Messiah still needed to come too before the end of the world. Therefore, the Messiah must come right after Elijah. Not only that, but there's another rabbinical tradition that says the second half of Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 that says the Lord coming into his temple, that the Lord reference there actually is the Messiah. That was also a rabbinical tradition. So the one who comes into his temple is the Messiah. 
but the text actually says that the one who comes into his temple is God. We know that both of those things are true. So it's funny, the Jews, like they missed that, right? But it's, they're right. <laughs> they didn't know how right they were. Um, so again, so that's why they think that Elijah comes, the messenger comes before the Lord comes into his temple, who is the Messiah. All right, so the order is Elijah comes, then Messiah comes, then the end of the age comes sometime after that. So when Elijah comes, you can expect the Messiah to come right after. That's the scribal tradition. Now it's good at this point to note two things. I wanted to say a lot more than this, but two things here. One, when the scribes said Elijah comes first, they meant the literal person of Elijah the Tishbite from the Old Testament. They believed that the literal Elijah who was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire would one day descend from heaven, preach repentance to Israel, and prepare the way for the Messiah. So they were expecting the literal person of Elijah to come before the Messiah came. Second thing, they believed that Elijah would be completely successful in his preaching of repentance. Now, real quick, that's not what Malachi 4.6 says. Malachi 4.6 actually has a conditional curse in it. Elijah will be successful or God will strike Israel with an utter decree of ruin. Right, so it's actually a warning, and the Jews recognized that because they would read Malachi 4.6 in their synagogue reading, and then they would go back and read Malachi 4.5 before they shut the book because they didn't want to end with a potential curse. So a curse is actually being threatened in Malachi 4.6. But they believed, they ignored that to some degree, and they believed that the whole nation of Israel was going to accept Elijah's message and that they were going to listen to him and repent and be prepared to receive the Messiah and avoid the judgment of God. And again, and they believe that because Malachi 4.6 says that the mission of Elijah will be to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now that is strange, and that can be understood with a couple of different nuances, but the overall meaning of Malachi 4.6, uh, the first half of it, is that the people would repent and turn to God. That's Elijah's mission. Preach repentance so that the people repent and turn to God. And so the scribes believed that Elijah would have overwhelming success at this. Probably because they're thinking, well, who in the world wouldn't listen to Elijah? Right? Like, who wouldn't listen to the miracle-working prophet who came down from heaven? Right? Prophets of Baal and all that. Who's not going to listen to that guy? And so they believed that Elijah would be completely successful. So in summary, the teaching of the scribes on this point was... Before Messiah comes, Elijah comes first. And when Elijah comes, he will preach. And the people will listen. They will repent. They will be prepared to receive the Messiah. And they will avoid the judgment of God. And that's what the disciples were alluding to in verse 11 when they asked, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And what the disciples are doing here in light of that, knowing what they're asking, they're subtly arguing with Jesus. They're being subtle. The question they asked is a leading question. It goes something like this. If the scribes are right, 
Then the people will repent and listen to Elijah, who prepares them to receive the Messiah before the end. And, if, and Jesus is the Messiah. So if Elijah comes first, then Jesus will be received. If Elijah comes first, then Jesus won't be killed. In a nutshell, the disciples are saying, if the scribes are right, then you can't die. That's what they're telling Jesus. Very subtly, right? The last time someone argued with Jesus about whether or not he would die, they got called the devil, right? So I think Peter's kind of gun-shy about that at this point. So they're being quite subtle here. But they're saying, if the scribes are right, then you can't die, Jesus. So what are you talking about with a resurrection? Jesus has just announced he will be raised from the dead. But according to the disciples, if Elijah comes first, then nobody will kill Jesus. So Jesus is either speaking metaphorically when he speaks of resurrection, or he is just mistaken about the whole thing. Again, the disciples cannot fathom a Messiah that dies, and that's partially because of their scribal tradition that had been beaten into their heads from childhood. So, I know I'm laboring the point, but to summarize again, the disciples are saying, Jesus, are the scribes right? Because if Elijah comes first to prepare the way for Messiah and preach repentance, and if the people are to listen, then you can't be killed. So are the scribes right or are they wrong? And now we come to Jesus' answer in verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. So apparently the scribes are right. Right? At least on the surface. Elijah does come before the Messiah. And Elijah does come, Jesus says, to restore all things. He comes before the Messiah to set things right. He comes to preach repentance to the people and prepare them to receive the Messiah. That's his mission. So the scribes, in a sense, we'll see more in a minute, but in a sense, they are correct in saying that Elijah comes first. I'm sure at this point the disciples are quite excited. (laughs) I'm sure they're very excited. The scribes are right. It's only glory from here on out. Jesus can't die. But then Jesus pops them with a question of his own. And how is it written of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. It's as if Jesus is saying, yes, Elijah comes first. The Bible says that. The Bible says it in Malachi. But now, disciples, you answer me a question. What do you do with all the other parts of the Bible that say Messiah must suffer? Jesus affirms what Malachi says, but then he tells his disciples that they are ignoring the rest of Scripture concerning the Messiah. They have to deal with both. They have to reconcile both. Scripture says that Elijah comes first, and Scripture also says that the Messiah must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And so the disciples have to deal with both. And that means that the scribes cannot be entirely right with their expectation about Messiah because they're not reconciling all of Scripture on this. Right? Sola Scriptura, Toda Scriptura. Scripture alone and all of Scripture But the disciples, like the scribes, are ignoring portions of scriptures. But the Old Testament does indeed teach that the Messiah must suffer. It's not all glory. Before the Messiah would enter into glory, he must suffer many things. And I think that there are many passages that Jesus is referring to. But three came to mind immediately to me that the Jews should have known very well. And I want to look at them with you briefly. The first is we should think of the beginning 
As God is cursing the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. From the beginning, God says that Messiah will come. The one born of woman will come. And Messiah will crush Satan and his works, but he will be bitten in the process. That is, he will suffer on his way to glory and victory. Right out of the gates in Genesis 3, the Messiah must suffer first. Or think of Psalm 16, verse 10. Very famous psalm, a messianic psalm that reads, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Here we read in this psalm that is about the Messiah that God will not abandon the Messiah to the grave or let his body rot in the grave. God won't allow the Messiah to remain in the grave. That's Sheol, the realm of the dead, the grave. He won't allow him to be abandoned there. But what does that imply? The Messiah will go to the grave for a short time. Before his glory, the Messiah must die. Or lastly, think of the great passage that everyone thinks of. The suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. We're going to take the time and read the entire text. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Amen. All over that glorious passage, and I was trying to highlight it with my inflections, all over that glorious passage in Isaiah, we see that the Messiah would suffer. All over it. We also see, especially toward the end, we see that glory and salvation and praise and satisfaction awaited him after his suffering for sinners was completed. He would enter his glory, but first he must suffer. The scriptures declared it plainly. It was the will of God that the Messiah must suffer. Jesus knew that, and he accepted that. He accepted it. And he was willing and desired to fulfill all that his Father had planned for him to accomplish. So Jesus affirms that Elijah comes first. And then Jesus continues to affirm that he must suffer and die. So then, in order to clarify to the disciples how that all fits together, Jesus goes on to teach them. We'll come back to this at the end, but he wants them to understand. So what does he do? Like the patient master that he is, he patiently and gently teaches them. Verse 13 begins with, But I tell you, now this is how Jesus introduces a teaching that's about to contradict the popular opinions of the scribes and Pharisees. You see that in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you, but I tell you. And Jesus is doing that here. He's about to give us the inspired interpretation of the Elijah passage in Malachi from the Son of God himself. Verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Jesus said, Elijah has already come. Which, by the way, what fear that would strike into the heart of a Jew to hear that. Elijah came already, and you missed him. Malachi 3.6 says God's going to destroy Israel for this. We know that that happened later in history in AD 70. But Jesus says that Elijah has already come. And when he came, they did whatever they wanted with him. And that's a negative statement. Jesus says that Elijah came and was rejected, is what he's implying. They did whatever they wanted. That's negative language. And he was mistreated by a group that Jesus refers to as they. They did whatever they wanted to him. And I think they refers to the scribes and Pharisees that the disciples had just mentioned in verse 11. But how does that work? Elijah just showed up back on the mountain, but then he went away, presumably back to heaven. So how did they reject Elijah? And who is Jesus referring to as Elijah if it's not the literal person of Elijah the Tishbite? For the sake of time, we'll be very simple. The promised Elijah who was to come was John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Jesus does not say that explicitly in our text, but it's already implied in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, verse 2... Malachi 3.1 is quoted and applied to John the Baptist. If you're a careful reader of the Gospel of Mark, you already knew John was the, the, the messenger. More than that, in, in Luke 
chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we read of the angel telling John's mother, Elizabeth, what John would be like. And the angel says this, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the angel tells us that John was to be like Elijah, to minister with the zeal and God-given authority and power of Elijah, to preach a message of repentance like Elijah preached in his day. And the Lord Jesus tells us explicitly in Matthew 11, if you are willing to accept it, he, John, is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus himself gives us the inspired interpretation of Malachi. God never intended Malachi to be understood as saying that the literal Elijah would come, but rather one in the spirit and power of Elijah would come. And if you compare the ministry, this is amazing for me this week, if you compare the ministry of John to the ministry of Elijah, you will see some amazing similarities. Elijah was a prophet, so was John. Elijah preached a message of repentance to the people of Israel. John preached a baptism of repentance to the people of Israel. Elijah was bold to confront the wicked king Ahab and Jezebel. John was bold to confront the wicked king Herod and Herodias. Jezebel wanted to kill Elijah. Herodias succeeded in killing John. The similarities are amazing. John is the typological fulfillment of Elijah's ministry. He was truly the Elijah who was promised to come before the Messiah. John preached repentance to the Jews and told them to prepare for Messiah's coming and a judgment that was to follow. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree and the one who comes after me comes with a winnower's fork and he's going to throw you into the fire if you don't repent. John even publicly pointed out and declared that Jesus is the Messiah in John chapter 1. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I told you that would come after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John declared he's the Messiah. He prepared the people. He prepared the way for the Lord. He truly did prepare the way for Messiah, but he was rejected. The scribes and Pharisees and chief priests would not listen to him. And when he was arrested by Herod, no one came to his aid. None of the Jewish leaders tried to help John. And that's because, and we'll see later in Mark's gospel, they hated John. They hated him. They didn't believe he was a prophet. They didn't believe his message of repentance. And they didn't believe him when he pointed out the Messiah. They rejected him. And they were glad when he was dead. They were glad to have him out of the way. Jesus says that Elijah came and they did not recognize him, but they were awful to him. And Jesus is implying that since they did not recognize his forerunner, they will not recognize him either. It's sad. They didn't recognize Elijah, so they're not going to recognize Messiah. They didn't recognize the messenger, so they will not recognize the main event. As it went with John, so also it will go with Jesus. Elijah came, and they didn't recognize him. And like John says in John chapter 1, he came to his own, and his own received him not. They didn't recognize the Messiah. Jesus must die. 
He will be raised. There will be glory and honor to follow, but first he must die. This is God's plan. This is what was written, and Jesus has committed himself to accomplish all of the scriptures. In closing, I admit that I I don't believe there is anything in this text for us to do. There is nothing practical commanded to us here. But there are some things for us to behold about our Lord and Savior. And getting a sight of Christ is often more important than hearing a commandment. So I have three things for you to see. The first, behold the perfect Son of God. Jesus was absolutely committed to accomplishing the work that his Father had sent him to do. He did not waver. He did not abandon his mission. He did not forsake the will of his Father. Though it would cost him everything, even his life, even an awful death on a cross, he stood resolute because he loves his Father. He continued to march toward Jerusalem, knowing that a cross awaited him there. But he entrusted himself to his Father and went anyway. So Christian, I want you to behold your example of faithful obedience no matter what the cost. And mark it well. This is what perfect righteousness looks like. I must obey my Father. I know what it's going to cost me, but I must obey. But even more than that, I want you to see your righteousness in Him. Because this perfect obedience is yours. Imputed to you. Credited to your account by faith in Christ. In the perfect Son of God, see your righteousness. Second, Behold the great lover of sinners. This knocks me over every time. Jesus commanded silence from his disciples so that he would not be hindered from the cross. He was determined to die. He wasn't going to allow it, he wasn't going to allow anyone to stop him from dying because if he doesn't die then there is no salvation for sinners. He would not be put off from his cross. So great is his love for sinners that he was determined to die. It's true, as strange as it might sound. He was determined to die. He was determined to lay down his life for the sheep. He was determined to bear the iniquities of many and be crushed by his father in order to make many accounted righteous. He wasn't going to let anyone keep him from saving his people. That is, Christian, he wasn't going to let anyone keep him from saving you. Behold the one who loves you and gave himself up for you. And lastly, behold the patient master. His disciples were so slow to believe him, they even argued with him. They were often confused and stubborn and ignorant of the world, but he taught them. Or rather, ignorant of the word, but he taught them. He deals patiently with his disciples. Notice that he never says, you know what, when we get down from this mountain, go home. Because you're too stupid and you're too stubborn. He doesn't do that. Rather, he teaches his disciples until we get it over and over and over. And he may rebuke his disciples, as we're going to see next week, but he never casts them off. He's patient because he loves his people. And know this. I read this from a commentator, and I wanted to share it with you. The disciples were not disciples because they understood everything or were so receptive to the truth. The disciples were disciples because Jesus chose them. And they continued to be disciples, even through their ignorance and stubbornness, because Jesus kept them near. Because Jesus was patient with them. And the same is true for us. It's by Christ's grace alone that we are his and remain his. 
and he will not cast us off. Brothers and sisters, behold your Lord. Behold your Savior, your Master, and your King, the perfect Son, the lover of sinners, the patient Master. See him and praise him that he is granted that you would be one of his. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for this difficult portion of Scripture that, as it comes out, is beautiful and shows us many things about the character of our Lord, shows us that his death was not a a surprise or a shock, but it was part of your plan, shows us that your glory and our good was always at the heart of everything Jesus did. And we stand amazed before our King. I pray, Lord, that this sight of him would inspire us to imitate him, would make gratitude well up in our hearts that we might obey him. That seeing these things about Christ would help us to hope in him and love him. And Lord, if there's any here who aren't converted, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see that they might not miss what the Jews missed in their day, but that they might see that Jesus is the Christ. Have mercy, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.